The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. Check it out on our website, www.remedialhistory.com. The Remedial History Project is funded through grants and by listeners like you. Please head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial History Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. In particular, funds from patrons added from here on out will help us launch a crash course YouTube channel on women's history. We will be producing short 10-minute videos that educators can play in their classes telling women's history from era to era for both U.S. and world history. Let's make history together. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In this episode, we are going to be introducing two queens that probably don't need any introduction. Queen Catherine of Aragon and probably her nemesis, Anne Boleyn. Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the inquiry-based question, did English queens Catherine and Anne have agency? And this is a very important question to investigate with students. Queens oftentimes, especially queens that are not actually the ones in power, they're the wife of. A lot of people assume that they don't have a lot of say or sway in the way that politics are being managed, and yet they're queen, right? They are in positions of power. And so when we're investigating empresses, monarchs, and politicians, we would be remiss not to talk about women who didn't actually officially hold that title but yet were so close to power and had an incredible amount of influence. And with these two women in particular, we really need to think about their agency in relation to things like the Protestant Reformation, right? Which is a major thing occurring in Europe and a great place where you could bring this in into your history curriculum. Today, we have an incredible guest, soon to be Dr. Chloe Gardner. She is a board member for the Remedial History Project, and we are so excited to have her here today. So without further ado, Chloe, could you introduce yourself? So I am Chloe Gardner. I am a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh. You might have heard my last episode, which was on Hindu goddesses and gender in Hinduism, which is what I focus on in my PhD. Uh, but Kelsey was kind enough to ask me to come back and do an episode about some Tudor history, which is my other great love after Hinduism. Um, it was Tudor history that first got me into history in the first place, specifically Henry VIII's wives and Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon, who we're going to talk about today. Um, and I do want to add a disclaimer that I have never studied the Tudors academically. This isn't my area of expertise, but I have read and researched all about them privately pretty much since I could read and it's just my favorite time period in history they're my favorite characters in history I feel like I've learned so much from them and yeah I'm just always glad for an opportunity to talk about them and share what I've learned and hear other people's opinions on them so that's what I'm here to do. 
I'm going to start with Catherine because she was older. She was the first wife, if we think of them in Henry's timeline. So Catherine of Aragon was born in 1485 and she was the youngest surviving child of King Ferdinand II of Aragon and Queen Isabella I of Castile, who you may have heard of as the amazing crusader king and queen who reconquered uh, Spain from the Muslim armies. And Catherine grew up in the Spanish court. She received a great education, especially for a girl at the time. And she spoke and read five languages and she was deeply, deeply religious, which would play a major role in her later life. At an early age, Catherine was considered a suitable bride for Arthur, who was heir to the English throne. On her maternal side, Catherine had a stronger legitimate claim to the English throne than King Henry VII of England himself. And as the Tudor monarchy was not accepted by all European kingdoms, owing to Henry's illegitimate descent, an alliance between Catherine and Arthur was seen to strengthen their position and made the heirs, their heirs' claims indisputable. So the pair were married by proxy and corresponded only by letters lit- written in Latin until Arthur turned 15. The 15-year-old Catherine didn't meet her new husband until she travelled to England in November 1501. Even in Latin, the pair could not converse, they spoke no common language, and nevertheless they were married 10 days after their first meeting. However, just a few months later, they both caught the sweating sickness and Arthur unfortunately died in April 1502. Thus, Catherine became a widow aged just 16. So the age-old question is whether Arthur and Catherine consummated their marriage and thus legitimised their marriage. I am of the majority opinion that they did not consummate the marriage. Arthur was sickly from the start, from the very first time that they met, and many from the Spanish court and the English court remarked on his ill health before and after the wedding. The evidence that they did can be taken merely as political propaganda at the time to ensure the public legitimacy of the match because if it had been admitted that the relationship was not consummated, this would have threatened the alliance between England and Spain. Personally, my main reason for believing that Catherine was a virgin when she married Henry VIII is that she was so religious that I don't think she would have lied in court under oath and her public assertion of this fact seems too important for a woman of her dignity and standing to have subjected herself to if it were not true. And nobody ever questioned the fact that the marriage wasn't consummated until the whole drama with Anne Boleyn came along 24 years later. Personally, I think that Catherine did indeed marry Henry VIII, a virgin. But between the two marriages, uh, Catherine's mother died which meant that her value in the eyes of the European courts decreased and she was kept as a virtual prisoner in London with no money to support herself or her ladies while the English king, Henry VII, decided what should be done with her now that she was a widow. He briefly considered marrying Catherine himself, which horrified her because he was, you know, so much older than her. And eventually it was decided that instead, Catherine should marry Arthur's younger brother, Henry, who was five years younger than Catherine. However, the marriage was not confirmed for many years, and she remained in a wretched position. She had no money, nothing to support herself, 
She was briefly appointed as the Spanish ambassador, making her the first Spanish ambassador in at least European history. Um, so this slightly raised her status, but basically she was completely alone. Her father seemed completely oblivious to her plight and only really cared about securing his own kingdom following his wife's death. So she was in a pretty tough position for a number of years while men decided her fate for her. However, eventually she was granted papal approval to marry Henry in 1509 when Catherine was 23 and Henry was only 17. They had to get the Pope's approval because there is against the biblical law for a man to marry his brother's wife, but dispensation was granted because the marriage was not consummated. And Henry VIII and Catherine were anointed and crowned together at Westminster Abbey in the same year of their marriage, 1509. Catherine was immensely popular with the English public and was greeted enthusiastically by the crowds and she remained a firm favourite with the public for the rest of her life. It seemed to be a happy marriage. They were equally matched intellectually. They both shared interests. They were well read by this point. Catherine's English was a lot better. And Henry VIII clearly trusted her as a ruler and a woman. In June 1513, Henry appointed Catherine regent for six months while he went abroad to fight in France. And during this time, the Scots invaded England, thinking that they'd be a weak target with Henry abroad. But instead, a heavily pregnant Catherine rode in full armour to address her, her troops. Her leadership was crucial in securing English victory at the Battle of Flodden, which is a huge deal between the English and the Scots. And she sent her husband a bloody piece of clothing from King James the Fourth of Scotland, who died in the battle. And I just think this is one of the most powerful images of Catherine and portrays her as I believe she would want to be remembered as a fearless, powerful, intelligent mother and queen. Henry wrote many poems and songs about his love for her and she adored him. She turned a blind eye to his affairs, which he had several of while she was pregnant. This was common practice for kings at the time. And he was noted to have always treated her with kindness and respect, even when relations became strained owing to the consistent failure to produce a living male heir. Throughout their marriage, Catherine fell pregnant seven times, but unfortunately only one child survived, a daughter, Mary, who was born in 1516. By 1525, it became common knowledge that Catherine was now past her childbearing years, and Henry began to suggest that perhaps his marriage was cursed owing to the biblical prohibition on marrying your brother's wife. They were officially married for 24 years before their marriage was annulled, but Catherine never accepted the annulment and continued to refer to herself as Henry's wife until her death three years later. And I just want to stress how important the male heir issue was, in my opinion. I think if Henry had had male heirs by Catherine, then I don't think he would have looked elsewhere or sought to replace her as queen. He had mistresses, he had affairs, as I said, but he never sought to leave Catherine to do so. He never flaunted his mistresses publicly, as other European monarchs did. And while Henry used the lack of male heir to justify his divorces, not only this one, but the subsequent divorces, I think it was a genuine concern of his, given that his family was relatively new to the throne. 
and there was still a real threat of civil war should he die without a legitimate heir. He did have one son with his mistress, Bessie Blount, which he used as proof that his wives were at fault rather than himself. But interestingly, he at the time, he didn't blame Catherine for failing to produce Amelia. He just saw it as proof that God was unhappy with the match. And the way he saw it at the end of the day, no matter whether he loved his wife or not, he still needed a legitimate heir to secure his legacy. And this is why in the future he was constantly legitimising and illegitimising his daughters because it was seen that a legitimate female heir was better than no heir. But Henry was resolutely against a queen ruling. He said that it could never be done and where it had been done, it had failed. So I think that's a background that people need to know before the whole Anne Boleyn drama comes into it. I think people need to know that not only was the Mailer thing really important, but that they were they were happy for 24 years before anything seemed to go wrong, despite the strain that the lack of air put on the marriage. This podcast is sponsored by our patrons. Patrons get access to behind the scenes, regular RHP gear, bonus episodes, insights into our research, lesson plans before everybody else, and more. Brooke, read off these awesome people. Thank you to Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, and Katya. Woohoo! Do you know what is so awesome about this particular group of people? No, what? Very few of them are actually educators. These are badass people who care so much about equitable and inclusive education that they are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. You too can become a patron of the Remedial History Project by heading over to www.patreon.com and becoming a sponsor of the Remedial History Project for just $5 a month. That's it. That's one latte. I mean, it's it's one of something, but it's cheap. And you get all that stuff? All that stuff. You too can give up one latte for thousands of children and women. You could also buy condoms for more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you, could produ- you could produce. You could reduce reproduction <laughs> for less than that. Uh. Brooke, most importantly, instead of lamenting that women's history isn't being taught in high school or that they didn't know these women, these people are putting their money where their mouth is and they are getting it into the curriculum by funding us. It's awesome. And they believe women's stories are important. Yes. Thank you. Duh. Thanks, patrons. We love you. We do love you. I've always found it so crazy that Catherine of Aragon is actually married to Henry VIII for 24 years. That is a very long marriage before Anne Boleyn even comes on to the scene. So can you tell me a little bit about how Anne becomes a part of this story? So Anne Boleyn came to court as a lady-in-waiting to Catherine around 1525. She was the daughter of one of Henry's advisors, one of the gentry. Her sister, Mary had also been one of the uh, king's previous mistresses. So, you know, he clearly had a had a habit of keeping it in the family. But as I said before, Catherine was used to Henry sleeping with her ladies-in-waiting. Most of his mistresses in the past had started out as ladies-in-waiting. So when Anne caught the king's attention, Catherine probably didn't initially view this as a serious threat. 
However, as the king became more and more serious about leaving Catherine, her relationship with Anne soon turned much more hostile, and it was noted that Anne was becoming increasingly arrogant and disobedient towards her mistress. And once the king had made his intentions official, Catherine and Anne became bitter enemies, with Anne vocally hoping for Catherine's death. She even supposedly plotted to kill her and her young daughter Mary, which I don't necessarily believe. I don't think she would have gone so far. There was a definite and understandable rivalry and hatred between the pair that lasted until Catherine's death. However, I do find it quite interesting that Catherine blamed Anne for everything. She continued to love and defend Henry despite his cruelty towards her. And this is somewhat understandable given the fact that they had a happy marriage seemingly until Anne came along. But I also think it's a classic sign of the patriarchy that, you know, women are turning on women instead of the man taking the responsibility for their affairs. But there's some evidence that Anne Catherine was quite sympathetic to Anne and Mary when they first came to court because she could tell that, you know, they were under the thumb of their father and that, you know, Mary was cast aside by the king with little prospect. But that soon turned very ugly, as we shall see. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about Anne's marriage to Henry VIII. So I think they were definitely in love for their early years of their courtship. There are still love letters between the two of them. Well, Anne's are mainly lost, but Henry's letters still exist. And they betray a really love, a very real love and a very physical love for each other as well. And the fact that, you know, he was prepared to change the whole face of his country and change his faith and, you know, humiliate himself almost in the eyes of Europe really proves to me how much, you know, he loved her and how powerful his feelings for her were. And in the early years of their relationship, she definitely did enjoy considerable political influence for many years. They were together all together for 11 years, which... Not as long as Henry and Catherine, but when you look at his following romances, you know, is still a considerable amount of time. However, I think it all kind of went downhill almost as soon as they were married. So they had to wait seven years to be officially married because Henry had to solve the issue of how to divorce Catherine. In this time, Anne had increasingly proved herself volatile and undiplomatic at court. She was jealous and opinionated with the king. She was paranoid, though arguably with good reason, that courtiers were plotting to usurp her and that Henry was becoming increasingly disillusioned with her failure to produce a male heir, which I think, again, is the crucial question that keeps coming back, is the male heir. However, she also couldn't hide her jealousy when he flirted with other women in a time when wives and especially queens were expected to turn a blind eye to their husbands' dalliances. Henry once told her that she should turn a blind eye as her betters had done before her, which I think must have been a real slap in the face and a reminder that, you know, she wasn't born to be queen. And also that, you know, he was unfavorably comparing her to Catherine. To come back to the issue of the male heir, I think, again, this is what ultimately it all came down to, despite Anne's behavior. Anne was already pregnant at her coronation. And when this pregnancy produced a daughter, Elizabeth, this was an almost immediate omen that this was not the God-blessed marriage that 
she had promised him and, you know, she, her her whole plea on him to take her as his wife was that she would give him the son that Catherine never did. And when Elizabeth was born, this was seen as proof that she could not fulfil this promise and that Henry had made yet another part, um, yet another mistake, which humiliated him across Christendom. So altogether, Anne had at least three pregnancies, the first resulting in the birth of her daughter Elizabeth, who would go on to be Elizabeth I, and two miscarriages. It is rumoured that she had a third miscarriage at some point, but sources are contradictory on that. It's often claimed, and I think the the other Berlin girl, the film um, based on the book by Philippa Gregory, has a lot to do with uh, perpetuating this rumour that she had a third miscarriage and that the last fetus was deformed, a deformed boy, and that this was taken as proof of Anne's witchcraft. But this seems to have been spread by later historians and there's actually scant evidence from the time to support it. And in fact, witchcraft was barely mentioned during Anne's trial. But definitely two miscarriages and one pregnancy. And I think by the time of the the second or potentially third miscarriage, I think Henry had already started to to regret his decision, partly based on her behaviour, but more importantly, because she had failed in her one duty to produce a male heir. So you keep talking about something that I've heard a lot in King Henry VIII's story, which is that he is after this male heir. But I've also heard that like he's king and he could at any point acknowledge one of the bastard sons that he had from these other women. So I guess I'm curious why this whole not producing a male heir thing escalated to beheading, right? Like, like, did it have to go there? How did we get from like, I don't know, my opinion, zero to 60? So basically, her behavior, her, as I said, you know, her flirtation, her jealousy, her seemingly you know, disreputable behaviour at court led to rumours that she was being unfaithful to the king. This led to people being asked to come forward with evidence, whether they were asked or whether they were tortured into giving evidence is still a hotly debated topic. But the thing to remember is Anne was very unpopular at court. The nobility didn't like her, the public didn't like her. And those who had sort of helped her get to where she was became began to turn against her as her power over the king sort of waned. So there were many important people at court who wanted rid of Anne, least of all Henry. So this is when accusations of treason, accusations of adultery began to spring up based on things that Anne had said or supposedly said or had been seen to do by some quite questionable witnesses. But in the end, she was accused of adultery with four men, uh, three courtiers and her musician, Mark Smeaton. She was sent to trial and she was condemned and she was sentenced to death. And that's where she becomes, you know, the famous second wife executed for treason and adultery. Whereas I think the truth behind that is a lot more complicated than, you know, the trial would have made it seem. 
Chloe, how does this whole story of these two queens, which can kind of get biographical and personal and a little bit away from the broader themes that a history class might have. Um, can you tell us how this whole story fits into the broader story of the Protestant Reformation in Europe? So that's always an interesting question. I think I always grew up thinking that the whole Protestant Reformation was attributed to Anne Boleyn because it's just great to think that one woman and her refusal to be used by the king changed European and even world history forever. And I think there is some truth to that. The important thing to remember is that you can't really judge people's beliefs by their kings or even by the laws. So when Henry broke with Rome, he made it treason to deny that he was head of the church. And that meant that even those who disagreed with his religious reforms were faced with the choice of legally denouncing Rome and accepting this new Protestant faith or facing death as martyrs like Sir Thomas More chose. So we can't really be sure to what extent people embrace the Reformation in their hearts or whether they just subscribe to it out of fear of persecution. But I think this definitely does need to be seen as part of the larger Reformation. The Reformation was already underway with vigour in Germany and across Eastern Europe. Henry or his ministers executed many Lutherans for treason before he renounced Rome. He was even lauded defender of the faith by the Pope for his persecution and writings against heretical Lutherans as he saw them at that time. His marriages were also carefully manipulated by reformists most notably Thomas Cromwell, but also the Boleyns themselves, who took advantage of the king's personal dilemma to push him away from Rome. And although many suspect that at heart Henry remained devoutly Catholic for the rest of his life, it's quite likely that eventually England would have come to Protestantism even without Henry's excommunication from the church. Scotland had its own Protestant Reformation despite having a Catholic queen on the throne, and Elizabeth I converted the country back to Protestantism after her older sister Mary's strict Catholicism, which was largely enforced through violent persecution, hence her nickname Bloody Mary. So I think it was probably an inevitable process of reformation in Britain or in England, certainly, but I think that Henry and Anne were definitely a catalyst for it. So to me, as an American... Henry's constant back and forth, right? He has different wives. Some of them are Protestant. Some of them are maybe more conservative or Catholic. And that sort of leads to him switching around his, his politics a little bit and his, his religious positions and beliefs. And as an American, all of this back and forth seems a bit tumultuous. And yet, Henry VIII was incredibly popular as a king. So can you tell me a little bit about why he was so popular among his followers? First of all, I think one that's kind of overlooked almost is his charisma. We now tend to think of Henry VIII as a fat old tyrant, but for much of his reign, he was the complete opposite. He, When he came to the throne, he was young, handsome, athletic. He was said to have the common touch with the people. He was as generous as his father was miserly. He was friendly. His court was full of entertainment and opulence. And he was really happy to leave his ministers to the stuffy affairs of state. 
He was also exceptionally tall for his day and such a contrast to his sickly and feeble older brother. He was chivalrous and an able soldier and basically he ticked every box for a Tudor king, at least initially. So I think people definitely saw him as kind of an almost King Arthur figure who, you know, was going to bring in this golden age of kingship. And leading into that comes with the divine right of kings. In Tudor England, kings were seen to be God's representatives on earth, especially post-Reformation, you know, when he was legally made head of the church. And therefore, there was this idea that no one could question him or his decisions because he could not be viewed to make a mistake, because to question him was to question God. Hence, the idea sort of appeared that he must have been bewitched into marrying Anne because that was a preferable idea to the fact that the king could have mistakenly broken his church from Rome or unjustly beheaded a wife. Sort of tying into that as well is just the good old patriarchy. Um, Henry blamed all his wives for all the faults in every marriage and the public was all too eager to believe that so Catherine was too old, Anne Boleyn was a witch, Anne of Cleves was too ugly, Catherine Howard was a slut, etc etc. So the king's virility could not be questioned which was one of Anne's fatal mistakes was that she dared to suggest that the king might be at fault. So there's this idea in Tudor England that, you know, this perfect man cannot be at fault. Therefore, he's just doing what God wants. And, you know, he's changing his wives and changing religions as the time fits. I also think it was just a time of religious tumultuousness, if that's the word, in England generally. The kingdom oscillated between Protestantism and Catholicism throughout Henry's reign and even afterwards during the reigns of his children. Many saw the wife as emblematic of the religion of the nation and therefore supported who was seen to support the more popular religion. So Anne Boleyn and Anne of Cleves were supported by the Protestants. Catherine of Aragon and Jane Seymour were favoured by the Catholics. And people cared more about the legitimacy of his children based on the religion they were deemed to favour rather than who their mother was. So they wanted Mary legitimised because she was a Catholic heir and they wanted Elizabeth legitimised because she was a Protestant heir. I think a lot of it came down to that. And finally, I briefly mentioned it before, but there was still a real public remembrance of the War of the Roses, which for those who aren't familiar was a civil war in England that the Tudors ultimately won. But the civil war was still fresh in people's memories and the public wanted to avoid another succession crisis, which could lead to another civil civil war. So if Henry failed to produce a male or even a legitimate heir, then the country would months more be thrown into turmoil and the Tudor's brief dynasty would be over already and everything would be back up in the air again. So I think the people wanted an heir as much as Henry did just to secure the the future of the country. And I think that's why, you know, when they saw that marriages weren't producing heirs, they were also happy for Henry to cast his wives aside because they shared his imperativeness that, you know, we need a male heir above all else. Despite both being women in power and despite both of these women wanting and caring for women and children and women's education, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn are very different women in a lot of ways. 
So how is it that you have come to admire both of them? What is so special about these two women to you? Catherine, I just think, is a real powerhouse for the dignity that she showed throughout the whole affair for her strength and you know never doubting herself not letting herself be cast aside and as I say before you know the Anne Boleyn drama she was really you know the sort of fairy tale queen she was kind she was generous she was charitable she you know heroically rolled out to defend her kingdom and in her husband's absence, which was, you know, quite remarkable in her day, the only person who had done that before was her mother. I just think the fact that she remained so principled to the point that, you know, she was not allowed to see her daughter for most of her daughter's life because Henry withheld her until Catherine would agree to the annulment of the marriage and Catherine chose her principles and you know she said this is the truth and I'm not gonna lie to me or to you or to God just for the sake of you know bowing to your will and I think that's just so remarkable especially in an age where you know women especially queens were just expected to you know to bend to the will of their husband and and Catherine would not do that whatever cost. And I think <laughs> I somewhat relate to her in her um, her ability to think before she spoke, maybe a little bit too much. But you know, she had a lot of a lot of charm. She was intelligent. She was witty. She was worldly and charming. And she wasn't afraid to stand up to Henry or to you know the powerful men in his kingdom, especially the ones who wanted rid of her. None of Henry's wives are particularly noted as being great beauties, apart from perhaps Catherine Howard. But he valued women more for their minds, at least when they were still attached to their heads. Um, (laughs) So I just think I always loved the image of Anne as, you know, this vivacious... She didn't let herself be put into the boxes that Tudor womanhood defined for her and I think that's a model that women can still relate to today you know they're still expected to be quiet and do as they're told and that they can do this and they can't do that and and never accepted that you know she saw what she wanted and she went for it and obviously it cost her dearly but I just think her spirit is really inspiring and even her enemies acknowledged how brave and how dignified she was you know up to her death and in her last speech and I just think that they're both examples of incredibly strong powerful women who you know followed their heart and also stayed true to themselves and I think that's a really hard balance to to strike even today. So I have always found it pretty hilarious that King Henry VIII spends pretty much his entire life trying to get a male heir. And he kind of does, but he dies in his teenage years. To achieve that end, he has six different wives. Two of them he divorces. Two of them he beheads. One of them dies in childbirth. That's the one who birthed the the boy. And the last one, you know, survives Henry VIII. I have always found it so hilarious that his son has a very short reign and dies. Then there's some tumult. 
queen rises and falls. And then his firstborn daughter is queen for a little bit. There's a brief stability, and then she dies suddenly. It is his daughter by Anne Boleyn, the one, the one he beheaded, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth I, who becomes the longest reigning monarch in English history up to that point, only to be superseded by queens that would come after her, Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth II. So to me, this is such like, uh, you know, history is funnier sometimes than any comedy that we could write. And despite the tragedy of Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn's story, how big of a deal do you feel it is that Elizabeth I becomes the longest reigning monarch in English history and actually creates the stability that he was looking for? I just think it's such a slap in the face for the patriarchy, to be honest. I, I love it. I love the fact that Henry's entire life and most of his decisions and most of the bloodshed that followed in his wake were based on the fact that a woman cannot and should not rule and yet it was his own daughters who proved that wrong. I think that Elizabeth's reluctance to marry and her whole persona as the virgin queen had a lot to do with what she'd witnessed as a child. Her heart father was hardly a great role model <laughs> for marriage so you know her whole reign was kind of defined by that. But I think Mary and even more so Elizabeth proved that a ruler does not need to be male or married to be successful. And without their legacy, we probably wouldn't have had the later monumental reigns of Queen Victoria or our current queen, Queen Elizabeth II, without whom the world would be unrecognisably different today. And I just, it makes me really happy for Anne and Catherine as well, because I just think they would be so proud of their daughters. They both fought constantly against Henry's refusal that they could inherit the throne. They were both adamant that a woman could rule just as well, if not better, than a male heir. I really wonder if Henry could have gone forward in time and seen what a great reign Elizabeth would have, if he still would have acted the way he did, if he still would have killed Anne or even divorced her. I think those sympathetic to Henry would probably say, no, he didn't care about gender. He just cared about the success of his dynasty. I don't believe that. I don't have any sympathy for Henry, to be honest. And I think that things would have ended badly anyway because of his belief that his inability to sire a male child threatened his masculinity and virility. But we'll never know, I guess. But yeah, I just think that they both, Mary and Elizabeth, both did Anne and Catherine proud. And I think that they really proved to women everywhere and in any generation that, you know, anything a man can do, a woman can do better. <laughs> Thank you for having me and listening to me fangirl about my two favorite women. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.